It's a privilege to be able to worship God together with you today on the occasion of the bicentenary of the Grace Baptist Church in Bexley Heath and also the seventh uh, pastoral anniversary of uh, Chola and his wife Eunice Mukonga. And it's an appropriate hymn uh, that we've just sung because the past Uh, 200 years in general, the past seven years uh, in particular, uh, are a real testimony uh, to the faithfulness of God. But I don't want you to think that faithfulness always comes in 200 or even seven-year increments. For instance, the hymn just sung was written by a failed pastor. Thomas Chisholm was called to serve as a pastor of a local church. He did so for just a few days short of one year. He would, in the providence of God, never serve as a pastor again. But yet, his hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, is one of the most well-known and most greatly loved reflections in all of hymnody about the faithfulness of God. It was actually written as he reflected on the experiences of that one-year pastorate and the personal as well as congregational difficulties uh, that he had uh, endured during that period. And what he learned through what many considered to be a failed venture has proven to be a great gift to the church of our Lord Jesus Christ as his thoughts were reduced to writing and took the form of this hymn Great is thy faithfulness. And so you may not have 200 years uh, to boast of. You may not have uh, seven years to be thankful for. You may have had uh, a, a life and your family may have had uh, an experience which has been uh, occasioned by considerable adversity and, and difficulty and yet you can stand and you can testify today uh, to the faithfulness of God even in the midst of all that. And I trust uh, that even as we worship God together uh, today, congregationally, uh, that we will have occasion uh, to remember his great faithfulness uh, toward us individually and personally as well. I uh, would not want to read uh, the text nor begin uh, to uh, preach uh, without uh, saying personally uh, how very thankful I am Uh, for the privilege uh, of being able uh, to be with you uh, again. Uh, I've been here a number of times over the years, but I think the last time that I was actually preaching here uh, was seven years ago uh, when Pastor Chola uh, was taking up uh, the work here. And though I have not been with you uh, physically, uh, I have often thought of you in prayer 
uh, and have rejoiced in every uh, evidence of God's uh, grace uh, at work uh, in your midst. I would also want to say that I'm very thankful for the support that you have given uh, to me personally and to the church planting work in Wimbledon over the past year and a half. I know you have prayed for us because some of you have been in touch individually and personally to say uh, that you're praying for us. And I know that you have contributed uh, to the work uh, financially and we're very grateful to God uh, for that. Uh, The church has been planted. Uh, We have now had a group of people covenant together uh, to form uh, the church. Uh, We were able this last week uh, to sign uh, a contract uh, that will uh, lead us through the first uh, phase uh, of renovations uh, to the church um, uh, building, which will provide, uh, amongst other things, a flat in which my wife and I and our daughter uh, will live, God willing, uh, in coming months. And you've been our partners in the gospel uh, in that, and we uh, are very grateful to God uh, for you. And so I bring uh, the, the greetings of Wimbledon Baptist Church uh, to you uh, today. And trust that I'll be able to uh, take your greetings to them uh, as well. Uh, and assure them of your continued prayers and support. Well, you didn't come to hear me. You came to hear God, and He speaks when His Word speaks. So please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 43. It's page 603 in the church Bible, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 7. Isaiah chapter 43 Uh, beginning with verse 1 and continuing to verse 7. Page 603, Isaiah 43, verse 1 to 7. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east. And from the west, 
I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Amen. Let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray. Great God and gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father, we pray just now that as we draw near to you, you would, in fulfillment of the promise of your word, draw near to us. And we pray just now that those things which we do not know, you will teach us. Uh, Those things which we do not have, you will give us. And those things which we are not, that you will make us for your glory. We pray that you would be pleased to add your blessing to the reading and exposition of your word so that you might receive glory, your people might be cheered and gladdened by the reminders of who you are and what you have done, and those who do not yet know and love the Lord Jesus Christ might be granted a repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they too might join us in the worship of our great God. This we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The great privilege of the people of God is simply knowing God. There's no higher, no greater privilege than that. Simply knowing God. And because of that, the greatest priorities of preachers of the gospel should be exalting the name of God and extolling the nature of God. And by his name, we mean who he is. And by his nature, we mean what he does because of who he is. Uh, Isaiah 43 verses 1 to 7 uh, provide me uh, a wonderful opportunity uh, this morning both to exalt uh, the name of the Lord and to extol the nature of our uh, great God. And they present me with the opportunity uh, to do this toward the end that all of us today might worship him uh, because of who he is and that all of us might uh, more effectively uh, bear witness uh, to what he has done uh, on behalf of his people. I know that uh, we are doctrinally a Trinitarian And so uh, I trust that you'll not be put off by the fact that my uh, message this morning only has two points. 
I assure you, I, I will aim to give you your money's worth in that I do have a number of sub-points uh, that I trust will uh, round things out, uh, so to say. But I, I, I have two primary things that I want to set before you. And also, uh, just in the interest of full disclosure, uh, I don't want you to get your hopes up after you've heard the first point. And it's taken me only a very few minutes to give it. You might think, well, if the second point is similar in length to that, well, we're going to have a much shorter sermon uh, than Pastor Chola uh, would normally uh, give us. So you'll know up front, don't read too much in uh, to the brevity of the first point. It is the second point that I want to spend a bit more time on. So uh, I want to set two things before you uh, today. Why two? Because uh, our text sets two uh, before us. And this text is not my uh, servant. I am its servant. So I want to speak to you, first of all, about the name of God. And by his name, uh, I simply mean the way in which he has revealed to us who he is. And then the second thing that we'll think about together in just a few moments is uh, the nature of God. And by that, I I simply mean uh, the ways in which he has revealed to us what he does because of who he is. And, And you really have to mention both, and you really have to make mention of them in that order and following that sequence because God does what He does because God is who He is. And it would be impossible, not just improbable, it would be impossible for God to do what He does without God being who He is. And so I want to set before you, and I I trust that you'll sense that I I am worshiping by by preaching. I I am exalting the name of God uh, by by telling you uh, who He is. And and then I trust that you'll sense that I am extolling God. I am extolling uh, the, 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 the wonderful qualities of His being, the, uh, the several uh, attributes of his character uh, as I set before you his nature in explaining what he does because of who he is. In looking for a single verse that uh, sums up what we should say about who God uh, is, we have no further to look than verse 3. Because in Isaiah 43, 3, The Word of God says, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And did you notice that he self-identifies with three very important statements? For I am the Lord your God. For I am the Holy One of Israel. For I am your Savior. Look at each of those three. First of all, for I am the Lord your God. Now, the word Lord appears hundreds of times in the Bible. 
Sometimes all of the letters in the word are lowercase, L-O-R-D. Sometimes the word appears with the first letter uppercase and the remaining three letters lowercase. Sometimes the word Lord appears in what we would call all caps. Every single letter in upper case. And don't you love it when you receive an email and some of the words are in all caps. And sometimes we know it's because they're emphasizing something and sometimes it's almost as if they're shouting at us are screaming at us. Please take me seriously. This is important. It is in all caps. When you see L-O-R-D in all caps, this is a particular name for God. This is the name that tells us that He is the Sovereign One. He is the Lord God. He is both Elohim, God of creation, and Yahweh, God of covenant. He is sovereign Lord, the sovereign one. He is the Lord, your God. And so this name tells us that he is the sovereign one. Likewise, it tells us that he is the holy one of Israel. And I want you to understand something about the word holy. For instance, I hold in my hand what is described on the cover as holy Bible. Now, I want you to understand what that word holy means. The word holy, and this is coming from someone who unashamedly affirms both the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture, the word holy as it is used here does not refer to moral or ethical perfection. It refers to the fact that this book is separate. That there is no other book amongst all the books on this planet which is like this book. Yes, the wisest man who ever lived would say, of the making of books there is no end. But when this book was made, it was drawn to an end. It is the Scripture. It is the Holy Bible. Tomorrow morning, I'll take a plane uh, from Luton Airport along with my wife. And God willing, by tomorrow afternoon, we will be in Jerusalem in Israel. Jerusalem is called not just by the uh, tourist bureau, but is called by the Old Testament, uh, the Holy City. Uh, Those of you who've been there before, as I have, would know. Uh, that it is not a city of moral and ethical perfection. Far from it. 
But nonetheless, it is a city that is separate. It is a city that is unlike all other cities. And so when God says, I am the sovereign one, I am the Lord your God, he likewise says, I am the holy one, that is the separate one of Israel. And it is this separate one who calls us to be his separate people. And then just a third thing. I am the Lord your God. I am the Holy One of Israel. I am your Savior. What a wonderful statement. I am your Savior. You do realize this morning that you need a Savior? You need a Savior from God because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But you can only be saved by God. And so God has commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You need to be saved from God. You can only be saved by God. And at the end of the day, you are actually saved for God. Not not for yourself. Not just so that you might have the so-called full and meaningful life or, or what some American preacher with big teeth calls your best life now. It's that you might be an occasion for the thrice holy God to receive praise, honor, and glory throughout all eternity for His grace toward undeserving sinners. You need to be saved from God. You must be saved by God. And at the end of the day, you are saved for God, for His glory. So if you wonder who's speaking today, the one who is speaking today is the one who says, I am the sovereign one. I am the Lord your God. The one who's speaking today is the one who said, I am the Holy One of Israel, the one who is the separate one. And the one who's speaking today is the one who says, I am your Savior. Uh, I am the one who has saved you from myself, by myself, for myself. He is the one who is speaking. This is the name of the Lord. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to gather together today in the name of God. Isn't it? Isn't it? We've gathered together in the name of God. The sovereign one. The separate one. The saving one. We've gathered in His name. That's all I'm going to say about the name of God. I call you today to exalt Him for who He is in light of His name. But now I want to speak to you about the nature of God. And as I explained a moment ago, when I speak of His nature, I'm, I'm simply saying what He does because of who He is. And it's a great privilege of mine uh, to be able to preach God's Word uh, because I have the wonderful opportunity uh, not of sort of pontificating uh, about the state of, of world uh, affairs, 
Uh, I, I have the benefit not just of uh, opinion sharing about my views about all uh, sorts of issues. Uh, that'd be positively discouraging and disheartening and disillusioning, both for me as well as for you. I, I, I don't podcast, but I do aim today to Godcast. I, I want today to uh, extol the nature of God because that lifts me in the doing of it. And I trust it lifts you in the hearing of it. So what does God do? Because of who He is. Could I point out four things? Number one, He speaks. He speaks. I'm not particularly clever or inventive. I don't have the mental agility to just sort of make this up, make this up on the fly. The only way that I can know that he speaks is because, look at verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord. You see, it was right there. Thus says the Lord. And if, if thus says the Lord is here... That would mean not just the permissive, uh, but the, the, the logical inference uh, is that, that he speaks. And then notice when he says, Now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel. And then you note from fear not, there you see the quotation mark, and then go all of the way to the end at verse 7. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created from my glory, whom I formed and made, close quotation marks, All of this is representing what God, the Sovereign One, the Separate One, the Saving One, has said because He speaks. And you're much too kind to say it. But you might be thinking, So what? Big deal. Sounds to me like a firm grasp of the obvious. Can I remind you that the gods who were worshipped by the people to whom Isaiah was commissioned to go... Though they had hands, they could not act. Though they had ears, they could not hear. Though they had eyes, they could not see. And though they had mouths, they could not speak. Our God speaks. At the end of the day, that's the only, only, only reason why you have gotten out of bed, quickly eaten your breakfast, thrown on your clothes, hurriedly made your way to church, while the vast majority of people in this area are still sleeping, many perhaps even still hung over from a late night, last night with no thought of God no concern for what he might expect of them 
But you've come today for one reason, one reason only. And it's not to hear me. You came because you believe that when this Bible is read and when this Bible passage is explained and illustrated and applied, that in some remarkable, mysterious, but miraculous way, God Himself speaks. The Sovereign One, the Separate One, the Saving One speaks. Now thus says the Lord. Now there are many people today who want to hear God speak. There are many people today who want to hear what they call a word from the Lord. And many people are discouraged because it seems to them as though God is not speaking. It seems to them as though God is silent. I want to give you some advice and counsel. It's based not only on the teaching of God's Word, but on a, for more than 40 years of pastoral ministry. I've seldom met a person who says that God is not speaking to them who is regularly and consistently reading their Bible. Read your Bible and God will speak to you. One dear lady told me, well, I want God to speak to me audibly. I want God to speak to me uh, out loud. I said, well, then read your Bible out loud. (laughs) I want you to know the sovereign one, the separate one, the saving one speaks. And you read his word and you will sense him speaking to you. And you draw together with other believers on the Lord's Day and at the midweek and you listen to his word explained and illustrated and applied and you will sense that God is speaking. But I must hurry on and tell you, not only does he speak, I must tell you that he acts. Now, it's important for us to note that those who systematize theology say that the several acts of God can be categorized into three main acts. His acts of creation, His acts of redemption, and His acts of providence. And it's interesting to note, is it not, that in this text, each of these three acts are mentioned. The acts of creation, but now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, uh, the acts of redemption, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. The acts of providence, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall 
shall not consume you. The God who says, I am the sovereign one, I am the separate one, I am the saving one, the one who speaks is the one who acts, and we see his acts in creation, redemption, and providence. In creation, we look back to the very beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. And it's a horrible thing. It's a reprehensible thing when evolutionary thought and teaching undermines our confidence in the belief in the creative acts of God. And if those foundations be destroyed, what will the righteous do? We look back to creation and see his acts of creation. But not only do we look back to creation, but we look back to the cross. And in looking back to the cross, we see his acts of redemption. And then we look not only to creation and to the cross, but we look to the crises in our lives. And in these we see the providential plans and purposes of God. I know a lot of times when we think about providence, we think only about good providence. Uh, We shun the so-called a bitter providence. We know that Cooper said, you know, behind a frowning providence, he hides his, uh, you know, a a smiling face. But, you know, Cooper had some mental health issues, so we can just disregard that. No, it's true that when he wants to highlight the providence of God, he doesn't point to victories, he points to seeming defeats. When he wants to draw our attention to providence, he doesn't point to high points, he points to seemingly low points. Things like passing through waters, things like passing through rivers, things like walking through fire, things like walking through flames. And all of these are saying to us that this God speaks and this God acts. He acted in creation. He acted in redemption. And He is acting in providence. He acts. Could I um, say to you a third thing? Not only does He speak. Not only does He act. Could I say also to you that He commands. Now, if you're keeping score, uh, he gives two explicit commands in this text. Uh, But both of these commands are the same. Uh, It's given in the first instance in verse 1, fear not. It's given in the second instance in verse 5, fear not. Uh, But the command is one and the same, fear not. Now, uh, I, I have been told Uh, that those words, fear not, um, appear uh, 365 times uh, in in the Bible. One for every day of the year. Now, again, in the interest of full disclosure, I have not counted them up. I, I don't know if it's 347 or 392 or 365, but I do know that it's a lot. It's a lot. In fact, I do know 
that this is the most oft-repeated command in the entire Word of God. Fear not. And notice the basis upon which this command is given. It's not fear not because as one um, uh, American president famously said, uh, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. It's not fear not because, you know, you're supposed to, uh, don't worry, uh, be happy. It's not uh, fear not because uh, really most of the bad things that we worry about don't actually come uh, about. So, you know, don't be uh, afraid. Uh, fear uh, will not empty tomorrow uh, of its sorrows. Uh, it, it will only empty today of its strengths, uh, Mr. Spurgeon would uh, say. It, it's, it's none of that, though. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. Verse 1. Fear not, for I am with you. Verse 5. Did, did you see that? The reason that we are commanded not to fear is because we have been redeemed. We have been bought with a price. We have been purchased. We are His purchased and dare I say, and in light of what I'm going to say in a moment, it will become explicitly clear, we're not just His purchased possession, we are His prized possession. So if you fear the One who has redeemed you with the cost of His own Son's blood, you will not fear what men can do to you. Fear not, not only for I have redeemed you, but fear not, for I am with you. Fear not, for I am with you. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Fear not, I am with you. If you're Thomas Chisholm and you have one year of difficulty, I am with you. If you're Cholomukonga and you have seven years of blessing, I am with you. If, if you're Wimbledon Baptist Church and you've got less than one year under your belt, or if you're Grace Baptist Church Bexley Heath and you have 200 years that you've clocked up, I am with you. Wonderful, isn't it? So, he speaks, he acts, he commands. And, and notice this. He reassures. Notice the basis upon which he reassures. He says, when you pass through the waters, not if, but when, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When, not if, but when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And when you walk through the flame, the flame shall not consume you. Notice how he is reassuring them. Think about it like this. In the Bible, what are the two primary symbols for judgment. Are they not? Flood and flame. Peter draws these together in the last chapter of 2 Peter, 2 Peter 3, and he talks about the world which then was was destroyed by 
a flood. And he says the world which now exists will ultimately be destroyed by flame. So is it just coincidental or incidental that Isaiah here, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, uses the imagery of flood and flame? I think not. He says the flood will only serve to cleanse you and the flame will only serve to purify you. To melt away all the dross and all the impurity and leave something not less valuable, more valuable as a result. And I don't know about you, but I need those assurances. I need those assurances. I, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. There's always a danger when you're the visiting preacher. You know, you don't have a few years to build up context. And so you might misunderstand what I'm about to say. There is another side to the story. Let me tell you one side of the story. By God's grace, I am a seventh generation Christian. In my father's family... Seven generations have known and loved and followed and served the Lord Jesus Christ. My father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather. You go all the way back. Seven generations. I have lost count of the number in those seven generations that were missionaries, pastors, evangelist, church planters. I could tell the story, but you would misunderstand my reason for doing so. I'm simply saying the lines have fallen to me in very pleasant places. Now, when I tell you the other side of the story, my mother was the first member of her family to come to faith and trust in Christ. And the story from that side is completely different. But we'll go back to the initial one. I've been going to church nine months before I was born. Um, every Sunday morning, uh, every Sunday evening, uh, every midweek. I was the first one there. I was the last one to leave. I have heard more sermons than sermon audio has on their entire website. I'm confident of that. I have served as a pastor since I was 17 years old, and I'm now 58. I've been there. I've done that. I've got the T-shirt. And I still need reassurance. Every time the water starts rising in my life, it's almost as though I've never seen the flood waters before. And every time the flame begins to burn and the temperature begins to rise, it's as though I forget everything that not only I've ever 
told others, but everything I've ever been told by others. And it's as though I forget everything that multi-generationally our family has believed and held to and been held by. And I forget it all in an instant. How about you? Do you need reassurance? When your teenager doesn't come home and is not picking up their mobile number, do you need reassurance? When your marriage partner is unwilling for you to have a look at that text message that just came through that brought a big smile to their face, but then when you ask about it, they said, oh, it's nothing. Do you need reassurance? Uh, when the doctor calls and says we need to have some more tests because we think there may be something sinister going on, do you need reassurance? When you know the cost of living crisis is making it where it seems at the end of the money there is still more month and then your employer calls you in and says we need to have a talk about Redundancy. Do you need reassurance? When your church is dying and you fear that you might close, do you need reassurance? When the church is beginning to grow and thrive and you think, where are we going to put these people in? And some of these people don't have the same background we do and the same experience and they bring different ideas. Do, do you need the God who speaks and the God who acts and the God who commands us, do not be afraid, gives us the reassurance that we need. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. And when the temperature is rising, just be encouraged, dear sight of God. The sovereign, separate, Saving one has his hand on the thermostat. And it will not be one degree warmer than he in love permits. Well, you've been very patient and long-suffering and I'm very thankful for it. But I have one final thing I want to say to you. I've, I've set before you this, this God who speaks and who acts, who commands, who reassures. Could I draw our time together to a close by simply reminding you that He loves. He loves. Now, why, why would I say that? Well, because He says that. He says, because you are precious in my eyes, uh, that's in verse 4, and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Listen, I know, I know that some of you are sitting here today and you feel that weight of guilt and that burden of shame and, and you think as though God just barely tolerates you, He, he just holds you at arm's length, He, he, he just puts up with you uh, at best. Here is what he says about his people. You are precious in my eyes. You are honored in my sight. I love you. 
That's the God. That's the God that I preach to you today. The God who loves you. Henry Francis Light uh, wrote the great hymn, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. One of the verses of that hymn says, Father like, He tends and spares us. Well, our feeble frame, He knows. Here's the truth. Henry Light's father cared more about fishing and hunting than he did about his wife and children. And in the end, Henry Light's father deserted the family entirely. His mother, being unable to look after him at home, was enabled to make arrangements for him to go to a boarding school. The headmaster saw potential in him that no one else had ever seen, personally paid his fees, personally purchased his books, personally brought him into his home during holiday time when accommodation was not provided, and treated him in every respect as an adopted son. When Henry Light wrote, Father like he tends and spares us, well our feeble frame he knows. Do you suppose he meant his biological father or his actual father? It was his actual father, the headmaster of the school, who gave him a clearer portrayal of his heavenly father in whom he would find ransom, healing, and forgiveness. He says to you, you're precious in my eyes. He says, I honor you. He says, I love you. What is the ultimate way that he shows his love? He says, I will give men in return for you and I will give others in exchange for your life. Is that not what happened on the cross when God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him might have eternal life. He gave His Son in return for us. He gave the darling of heaven in exchange for our life. He loves us. Well, I, uh, I, I really do have to stop, but um, I, I remember working through this passage with a man and I came to the end and I said, um, Selah, which basically is a way of saying, well, there, what do you think about that? And he responded in what to me was a quite extraordinary, very unusual way. He said, it sounds really good if you're a Jew. 
I said, what do you mean? Now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. It looks as though this is a promise to the Jews. And this is a prophecy to Israel. I said, you're right. In part. How does the passage begin? I've just told you. How does the passage end? Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name. And he uses the same language here that he used concerning Israel in verse 1. Everyone whom I have created for my glory. Everyone whom I have formed by my name. Uh, This is to the Jew first, but then to the Gentiles. This is the power of God unto salvation. And isn't it a wonderful thing we can look around our gathering today and we can see that there are those here today from the north, there are those here from the south, there are those here from the east, there are those here from the west, and the sovereign God, the separate God, the saving God has said to the north and to the south and to the east and the west, give them up for they are mine. And you say, well, how do you know that? Because I've read all of Isaiah. And I know what follows in just verses. That wonderful climax point of the entire prophecy when he will say in Isaiah 45.22, the text being preached on the morning that Charles Spurgeon was converted... Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, there is none else. So I'm saying to you today, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how far you've gone. I don't care how long you've been there. Today, today, if you will hear His voice, today, if you will repent of your sin and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, today, you will be saved. For He has given His Son in exchange for His people. And you today can come to know God through faith and trust in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, join me in saying, Amen. Amen.